Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I was lucky enough to play four games this week, which was a ton of fun. Um, they were all really good sessions, um, and so I'm going to do session recaps for all four games, one on Thursday night, two on Saturday, and one on Sunday morning. And um, that's going to be this episode is just session recaps for those four games. Um, I've got a bunch of call-ins and so next episode will be a call-in show. So if you're waiting to hear your call-in or if you really want to hear some call-ins, um, listen to that one. But if you're interested in some session recaps from the sessions that I played in or ran, then stick around because that's what this episode is going to be. All right, so the first game was the family game, actually, on Thursday night. Um, I didn't have a, a game going on Thursday night, so I asked the, the family players if they would like to play, and they said yes, and I said, all right, I'll put something together. And what I did was I took the Adventures in Middle-Earth characters that we had been playing and converted them over to the One Ring 2nd Edition, which is not that hard to do, um, relatively easy to do. And um, I gave them some extra experience points to reflect their um, sessions worth of experience. So I built them up a little bit higher than kind of starting characters. And I said, all right, we can uh, play One Ring Second Edition using the... Um, what we had been doing is playing the uh, Wilderland Adventures book from... Uh, Adventures in Middle-earth, which is the same adventures as the Tales from the Wilderland book for the One Ring First Edition. So One Ring First Edition has uh, a set of different adventure books that were converted over to Adventures in Middle-earth for 5e. So we're essentially just picking up the story at the same place that we were when we paused it, um, but we're uh, using a different system. And that actually worked really well. Um, I don't know how much the players were into the, the One Ring 2nd Edition. They um, are not super system oriented, to be honest. So I don't think they were, I don't think they really um, felt like it was super um, necessary to switch systems or anything like that. But I really love the One Ring in both editions. And so I felt like it would be fun to run the One Ring 2nd Edition for my family just as much as anything to introduce them to uh, a game that I really love. So that was a lot of fun. So what we did was we um, we haven't even really gotten into the adventure yet except for the first little bit of it. But what happened, so there's going to be a tiny bit of spoilers for the third adventure in the Tales from the Wilderland book. Um, but what happened was basically the players, um, the characters were, um, have made good friends with Radagast the Brown in Roscabel, which is one of the woodmen towns in, on the edge of the Mirkwood forest in the West. And, um, basically we spent most of the session just kind of going out most, well, maybe an hour, maybe a little less maybe a little more. Um, a lot of the session was spent going over the character sheets and the system and how it all worked and what they needed to know to be able to play the game. 
And then what I said was, okay, so you guys are in Roscobel, it's the spring, and Radagast has a um, mission for you guys, because that's sort of how we've been playing is that Radagast just sort of says, hey, it would be great if you guys helped me out with this thing, and then they go do X thing, generally, because Radagast gets information from all over. So they went and um, they heard from Radagast that Bayorn... Uh, Bayorn is having trouble with orcs, and so they weren't sure what um, exactly that meant, but that they needed to go and um, deal with some orcs. So what we did was we did a journey from Roscabel up along the Anduin and to... Um, Bayorn's house, and I uh, miscalculated it a little bit, but that was okay because we got a couple more um, events in than we would have otherwise. Um, but the, we did the the sort of normal um, One Ring Second Edition event setup, and um, I rolled randomly an Eye of Sauron on the event type, which in first edition meant a combat encounter. In second edition, it's not a full combat encounter. It's just sort of a implied combat where the character can get wounded. And so I decided that um, rather than do an implied combat encounter, this would be a good chance to do sort of a full combat encounter. So I said there are five orcs that you can see coming, you know, you can see them from a pretty good distance away because you're out sort of in the open in the valley. So um, they got two rounds of shots with their bows. So we went through all of that. Um, and then that took down, I think, two of the orcs and then three of them were remaining to be faced in melee combat and the heroes took them down pretty handily. They were just regular orcs, so five of them shouldn't really trouble them too much. Um, certainly first starting characters would have had more trouble, but these characters have all been through, um, I gave them seven sessions and two years worth of um, adventuring points and experience points. So they got uh, a fair bit of upgrading. And um, they also all have magical weapons. Last, um, I added a thing to the adventure, the last adventure we did, that they found a sort of cache of um, magical weapons and were able to, you know, there was sort of one for each of them. And so they now, the the... My grandfather's uh, character carries an axe, so he has an enchanted axe. My dad's character is a um, ranger with a longsword, so he now has an enchanted longsword. My mom's character is an elf who normally uses a bow, but when she needs to get up close, she now has a regular sword. And my little sister's character is a hobbit who um, uses a... Uh, she's got a short sword that glows blue when orcs are near, so they can't be ambushed by orcs, which is pretty useful. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. They're definitely pretty capable characters. So five orcs was not, um, a ton of danger. Although, you know, when the roles go one way or the other, you can definitely end up in a lot more danger in that game than you sort of first expected. Um, but anyway, they took them down pretty handily, and it seemed like everybody had a lot of fun. They they said afterwards that they had a lot of fun with the new system, and they're um, excited to play more, which is always a good sign. Um, so it seems like we're going to play more of that. Once, once my Thursdays are sort of fully sorted out, we're going to um, try to play, I think, every other week, maybe every week, um, Thursdays, at least with, uh, with the family. 
it um there's a couple of other Thursday games that I'm sort of involved with and so I don't know if we're going to be able to play every week with the family but uh, if it ends up being every other week that would be totally fine and um, plenty fun and um, we'll definitely get a lot done every other week so anyway that was the first game that I ran over the course of this past week um, with a one ring second edition, the first time I had run an actual session of it and it was a ton of fun. Um, the system I think works really well for telling those sorts of stories. Um, much like first edition, there's so much flavor that comes through in the kind of mechanics or mechanisms of the system itself. Um, in a way that kind of, I think it makes the GM's job really easy in some ways because the GM, because it has all these procedures for creating sort of Tolkien feel, the GM can just sort of focus on kind of what story they want to tell almost in a little way. In some ways, it's a little like some of the procedural OSR games. I think the, the way that some people feel like those help them just sort of tell a story. Um, or I think what some of the story game people like is that, um, certainly powered by the apocalypse in its kind of um, most common form. One of the ideas is that you're just sort of telling a story together and you roll the dice when the dice tell you they need to be rolled essentially um, because the moves state when the dice are rolled and it's up to the, the story essentially rather than the GM to call for roll and things like that. So anyway, I, and, and I guess part of what I'm saying is that I'm very comfortable with the One Ring rules. Um, I really enjoy them. I really like a lot of the procedural stuff that they allow for. And I think they create a really great feel in addition to being um, very cozy. There's a, there's a real sense of coziness running that system that I get kind of similar to the way I feel when I run Pendragon, that it feels very, you know, I just, you know, feel very cozy with it. So... Anyway, One Ring 2nd Edition Thursday night with the family was a whole lot of fun. That was the first game of the week. Let's go on to Che Webster's The Strange. All right, the next game was The Strange, run by Che Webster. And then we had um, me playing Dr. Jeremias Brass, who is a... Um, a clever paradox who solves mysteries, I think is his three things. The Strange is a cipher system game, and so there's this sort of three-part character creation structure where you have basically like an adjective noun who verbs is the way that they kind of build characters. Um, so that's Dr. Jeremias Brass. And then we had um, Carl Rodriguez, the geomologist, GM extraordinaire Carl, who um, was playing Xiomara Diaz who was a um, a, uh, a vector, and I don't remember her stuff. I think one of her things is licensed to carry because she has guns and she's good at shooting people with guns. Um, and then we had Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast who was playing Nick Cage, as in the actor, who is a um, spinner, so he's a, a sort of charismatic character who um, supports others, who leads, I think is his verb. And um, then we had Evil Jeff, who I think Evil Jeff was also playing a spinner, um, but I don't remember for certain. And um, his character, Malcolm, 
Evil Jeff runs the Minions and Musings podcast, and his character, uh, Malcolm, uh, was new. He wasn't at the first session, so he got kind of introduced into the game. Um, so it was, a, it was a really fun session. It was actually, it was a lot of combat, but um, the combat was really engaging and really fun. We basically, we started off where we had discovered this um, wardrobe that had a sort of um, portal element to it that connected to purgatory. And so it let this demon out into the world. And the first session was finding the demon and destroying the demon and then finding the wardrobe in this antique shop. Um, so then we had gone through the portal and were sort of, one of us had gone back through the portal. Jason as Nick Cage went back through the portal. And then while, um, Dr. Brass and Ziamara were in the, um, in the cave in purgatory, they saw three more demons sort of come up and, um, they were moving to attack. So, um, Nick Cage was sort of trying to convince the police that we had called that everything was okay, but that they needed to get ready for something to happen. Um, Ziamara and Dr. Brass basically tried to dodge the attacks of the demons and popped through the portal. The police were all, of course, incredibly surprised that that happened and started drawing their sidearms. Nick Cage was trying to talk them down, and then the three demons popped through the portal too. So, and that's about where Malcolm, uh, Evil Jeff's character, showed up also. So we had all four of us, the police just sort of firing randomly into the air um, because uh, they, um, the way the cipher system works, that NPCs who are lower level than other NPCs basically can't um, harm. So if you have like allies that are lower level than enemies, the allies basically can't do anything to the enemies. Um, at least that's my understanding of the way Che explained it. So um, the the police were basically just, you know, firing at the demons ineffectually. Um, but we had a whole series of good roles. Um, my character, Dr. Brass, has a special ability called, I think, Exception that basically lets him do mental damage to an enemy. So what he would do is he would do uh, finger guns at the demons and shout, Brain Blast! And that would shoot out a bolt of psychic energy and um, brain blast them. And I killed I killed the first demon that came through with that, with a big critical. And then the second demon was sent back through the portal by Evil Jeff's character, Malcolm, with a um, clever use of a cipher that was a sort of telekinetic flashlight, um, essentially. And then the third demon was causing more chaos, but um, the police had run out of the room by that time, and I was able to brain blast it to death um, with a lot of help from Carl's Ziamara, who was was uh, another effective combatant. And all the characters were were really, I think, gelling pretty well. Um, Nick Cage had a whole thing where he could basically support our roles to make them easier, to make our attacks more likely to hit. And then Ziamara has some really cool abilities in combat with guns. And um, Dr. Brass, with his brain blast, um, was more dependent on rolling high than um, necessarily good uh, by the numbers. But he rolled high a number of times, so he uh, got him down. 
and um, Malcolm, Evil Jeff's character, was having fun with the telekinetic flashlight, sending the demons flying and all that sort of stuff. So, so we once we had dealt with the demons, we were sort of like, okay, we need a breather. So we sort of sat and took a rest while Malcolm went out to the police. There were six of them who had been in the room and basically convinced them that what happened was a sort of um, weird hallucinogenic experience of bats flying out of the wardrobe and that um, he was from sort of essentially special animal control. And um, Evil Jeff had a, a great speech that he gave them that he role played the whole thing out that was awesome and um, explained to them that they had like inhaled some fungus that was growing inside the wardrobe and that the bats flew out and that made them all have this kind of crazy experience. Um, and they bought it because he used this special ability to convince them. So they were like, okay, you know, that's all right. And then um, we, uh, we, he came back and we were sort of recovering. So we sort of investigated some of the other stuff that was going on. Evil Jeff's character, Malcolm, again, was very useful. He um, hacked into the laptop of the one of the victims of the first demon who had worked at this antique shop where the wardrobe was. And so that's how we found this place. Um, hacked into the laptop and got his all of his notes about the project onto his smartphone and then wiped the laptop. And um, that's when we um, ended up, basically there was, because of a complication, another even bigger demon that came through that was wearing a signet ring that was important to the um, process of sealing the portal. Um, and so we ended up basically with that one, instead of fighting it normally, what we did was um, Nick Cage was able to sort of talk it into a state of submission and um, Ziamara was able to disarm it. And um, I think I tried to grab the ring off of its finger, but I didn't succeed. And so Ziamara had to get in and swiped the ring off of its finger. And Evil Jeff, uh, Malcolm, telekinesis flashlighted the demon back through the portal. And then we shut the doors, locked it with the special key. And then um, Evil, then Malcolm said, uh, Ziamara, come read this. And Ziamara put the ring on and read the incantation. And because it was old Romanian and Romanian is a romance language, she had a little bit of extra special ability because she's uh, Hispanic and so presumably knew that not that all Hispanic people know Spanish, but her character was a Hispanic person who also spoke Spanish. Um, and so she had a little bit of a leg up in pronouncing the words and was able to uh, perform the ceremony to seal the portal. So the wardrobe turned back into a regular wardrobe. Um, and then what we did was we basically, uh, oh, there was also the surgery, the impromptu surgery that Dr. Brass had to perform with his dagger on Ziamara, but that was a little gory. So I won't go into the details of that, but he, he basically had to cut off a pustule from, uh, from Ziamara. Anyway, so we we loaded up the now normal wardrobe with all the stuff into a U-Haul truck and um, drove to the hospital where one of the victims of the first demon was recovering and found that she was doing much better, 
or he or she, I don't remember, they were doing much better and um, were recovering quickly now that the sort of influence of the demons was gone. And so we returned the stuff to the estate so that they can kind of put it away in the Indiana Jones style uh warehouse or whatever they do with magic wardrobes because presumably that's a thing that happens often enough for the estate to have a protocol for that um anyway it was a ton of fun it was really fun i really like that group of guys um carl and jason and evil jeff and che in particular are all um really great friends of mine um really great guys i really love getting to play games with them um Especially all of all of that group together is, I think, has a really good chemistry, um, and um, super super fun to play that session. Che is um, no matter what he says, Che is a quality game master. Um, he is definitely fun to play games with. Um, and then obviously Jason and Carl and Evil Jeff role played the hell out of their characters, and that was a ton of fun. And I got to brain blast some demons, and that was a ton of fun. And um, Cypher system, you know, I, I thought it was really good. I thought it worked really well. It sort of got out of the way and um, we could sort of see the numbers ticking down and we were like, okay, we're getting closer to being out of resources. Um, but uh, in a little bit of a gamist way, but I think it, it worked well for the session. I, I think it um, had a real flexibility to it that um, worked really well. I guess. Um, so that, that session of the strange was a ton of fun. I'm really glad I woke up early. I'm glad evil Jeff woke up early enough to join us. Cause he missed the first kind of 20 or 30 minutes where we were mostly just bullshitting. Um, just talking about real life stuff and, and hanging out and all that sort of stuff, which is always a fun thing too. It's always nice. I think, um, with the the RPG groups that I'm a part of, it's a really nice thing to to kind of have enough time scheduled to be able to spend, you know, 15 or 20 minutes just sort of hanging out, shooting the breeze before you get into this sort of, okay, it's time to play the game mode. That there's a real a real nice element of kind of spending some time hanging out with your friends outside of the RPG thing in addition to hanging out and spending time with them inside of the RPG mode. So anyway, um, yeah, the strange, it was a lot of fun. Um, I had an absolute blast. Um, I was running on very little sleep and was worried that I was going to, uh, not feel very well or that I was gonna, um, not, uh, somehow things were going to go wrong and that wasn't the case at all. It was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a really fun session. We um, had a had a blast, a brain blast, uh, fighting some demons and sealing them back in purgatory. So, um, and we're talking about continuing that campaign. Originally, we were only going to play for three sessions, um, but Che uh, seems like he had a lot of fun too because he was sort of saying, "Could we do this longer?" And um, it seems like everybody has said that yeah, we could probably figure out how to do more of this strange campaign and um, be able to um, be able to play regularly. So anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, we're talking about playing like maybe every other week for a little while, maybe a little less often than that, but um, often enough to be able to get some momentum in the game and have some fun, see the characters in action at higher levels 
also because that's sort of a thing. So um, I think it's going to be good. Um, I'm really excited for more of that. Um, like I said, I had an absolute blast in that game. It was a ton of fun, um, which is thanks to everybody involved. Um, but Che in particular, I know he gets down on himself sometimes about his GMing skills and being too flaky and being nervous and being tired and all that sort of stuff. And if you're listening, Che, I think it bears repeating that um, every game that I played with you has been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, you got to you, like I said in my calling, you got to trust us that when we tell you we're having fun, we, we mean it. So um, anyway. Yeah, The Strange. That's all for that one. And now we're on to the second game of that Saturday, which was another game of the One Ring 2nd Edition. All right, I am back and I am here to talk about the One Ring 2nd Edition game that I ran on Saturday. Um, You'll notice that I ran more One Ring 2nd Edition which is because I really like that game. Um, The alpha PDF, the alpha rules are all that's out so far, but if you back the Kickstarter, you should have access to the alpha PDF. Um, And it's definitely playable. It's not... um, there's some kind of quality of life improvements that aren't there. There's, you know, missing art in the book, so it's definitely not finished, all of that sort of stuff, but it's in a playable state system-wise. So, anyway. um, So... Um, I'm going to spoil the first adventure in Tales from the Wilder Land. If you uh, do not want the Tales from the Wilder Land adventure spoiled, you should stop listening now. Um, But I'm basically going to tell you about the first adventure. So the first adventure, it basically involves a trip across Mirkwood. And that's that's essentially the, the core idea is that get the players involved with this merchant and then the merchant hires them to go across Mirkwood and they take the elf path across Mirkwood forest. And that's, that's basically the whole um, first adventure. And it's a good way to sort of introduce them into the world, give them a sense that like Mirkwood is really dangerous, um, all of that sort of stuff. And it's, I think it's a pretty good adventure. Um, Not perfect. There's some uh, kind of small things that I, I tinkered with. um, But I, I think on the whole, all the adventures in Tales from the Wilder Land, I think are pretty good um, and make for a fun sort of mini campaign. So anyway, um, so the uh, first adventure starts with the party in Lake Town. So we just started in Lake Town. I said, you guys have all gathered here. You guys have um, become sort of fast friends and um, become sort of a, a group together without having really gone on a big adventure together yet. Um, and then it starts off there at um, the Long Lake. They've left they're, you know, maybe an hour's hike away from Lake Town itself, and they're at the site of where the old Lake Town was, and the 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 bones of Smog, the dragon, are in the lake, and they're sort of seeing the sights and hanging out. And then they hear a boy cry out who's crying, help, help. And so we got some dice rolling, rolled some awareness to see who spotted the boy. Um and this boy, Belgo, who is, um, I think in the adventure he's supposed to be 10, but I said he was, you know, it's hard to tell, he's 9 or 10, because um, I'm changing the timeline just a little bit. Um, essentially, 
um, Belgo comes out and he says, help, my, um, my dad is being attacked by his guards. You have to save him. And so the party, um, being heroic characters, decides, okay, we'll follow you to, we'll follow the boy to the um, side of this thing. And they find this uh, older man, this kind of pudgy merchant, who's fending off these three thugs who um, he had hired as guards, who have decided that it would be easier to just kill the merchant and take his stuff rather than trying to actually cross Mirkwood. So the the heroes run up. Um, the thugs sort of say, "Hey, leave us alone. Um, this is this is our business, and don't bother us." And um, the dwarf Freren basically says, "You know, if you have a problem with him, you can take him to the court of justice, but you're not going to do anything to him while we're around." And I said, "Yeah, that sounds like an awe role because awe is sort of used as a sort of catch-all, also intimidation skill." Um, when you try to intimidate bad guys, um, and he rolled a great success, um, and 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 it actually was a, a great success, meaning that he got um, not only a success beating the target number, but one of his six-sided success dice um, came up with a six, so he got a, a higher level of success. And basically, the thugs dropped their weapons and turned and fled. Um. So then they're talking to the merchant. The merchant sort of explains what happened, says that he's very grateful. And then the merchant has an idea and he says, you know, you guys are tough and you scared off my last guards. Can I hire you guys to be guards for me? And um, the player characters are sort of thinking, well, maybe we've sort of got stuff to do, but this is, you know, clearly the adventure. And he offers them uh, some money. He offers, he says he's going to pay them and that he's got rations already for them and all that sort of stuff. He's all ready to go if they'll just agree to go with him. And they decide, yeah, you know, we're, we're cool with that. So um, they set off and they go, they walk for a couple hours that day and find a sort of secluded spot on the river to wait. Um, and they talk to him some more, get some information. They pick up. Um, one of the things that I think I did a really good job of running this game is um, that they would ask questions of Baldor the merchant. Baldor is the merchant and Belgo is his son. Um, they would ask questions of Baldor the merchant and Baldor the merchant would give them not the information that they asked for, but information that becomes useful for the adventure. There were a couple of cases like that, that I think it worked really well that they would ask like, Oh, Baldor, have you been on the elf path recently? Do you know what we're going to expect? And he'll say, you know, no, I haven't. I, um, you know, after I lost my wife in, um, the attack of the dragon on Lake town and lost most of my, um, mercantile stores. This is sort of the first time I've been back out this way. Um, but I, you know, need to rebuild my, my business and all that sort of stuff. And so they get some information about Baldor without getting sort of the information that they asked for. Um, which I think is a, it's, it's kind of a clever technique, a way to feed the players information without making it sort of seem obvious that you're doing that, that you have a sort of chatty NPC who's willing to talk about what they know, um, and who says things that become useful later because they, right in that exchange, they learned that Baldor was there at the dragon attack and that becomes important later. Um, 
So anyway, they um, wait for a little while, and that evening, three um, elves piloting three elf rafts come up the river, and they put the 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 people the the party members and Belgo and Baldor and the four ponies onto the rafts. And then they spend a couple of days going up river on these rafts towards the elf King's halls. Um, they talked to one of the elf NPCs whose name I wrote down, but I don't have it in front of me, so I don't remember it. Um, starts with an L definitely. And that's another thing that I think is going to work well because there's some later adventures that involve Mirkwood elves. And so we're sort of seeding the world in a sense, right? They meet a Mirkwood elf now. And so later on, maybe they'll ask about their buddy that they met before, or maybe it'll be their buddy that they met before when they meet some other Mirkwood elves, right? He's He's been transferred to a new job, and so he's somewhere else in the world now, that sort of thing. Because uh, I think that, that gives the world a real sense of continuity, right? To have NPCs that you met before be, um, you know, met again, the idea of that, sort of continuity of interaction between the characters and the NPCs gives the world that feel of continuity. Obviously you can overdo it, right? You can turn it into a, a comical thing if you do too much of that and it'll be like a joke. It's like, like a director that uses the same actor for three different roles or something um, where it becomes sort of a joke. But um, if you do it um, sparingly, I think it can be a good way to increase continuity. Anyway, so they get to the Elf King's halls, and Lindar, the the uh, lord, the the master of the cellars, basically says, "All right, you guys are here. Baldar's my friend, so you can stay here. Um, but the you guys are going to have to stay in sort of quarters down here. And I don't much like the dwarf or the Hobbit um, because he was the master of the cellar when Bilbo came through. So he has a thing about hobbits, right?" Um, and the players picked right up on that and they sort of said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to convince him that we're good, that we're he's going to have to respect all of us. And so we had a chance to try out the um, council mechanics and um, we had Hallis the elf introduce the party and then the three successes that they needed to succeed at the council were won by each of the other party members. Because we had four party members for that session. We had Hallis the Elf, Bungo the Hobbit, Wilder the Ranger, and Freren the Dwarf. And um, basically Hallis introduced the party, but then um, Freren the Dwarf was able to recall some obscure bit of lore that impressed the elves. Bungo the Hobbit was able to um, use his kind of knowledge of courtesy to uh, make an impression on Lindar. And um, Wilder the Ranger was able to use his kind of um, persuasive discussion of the, the need to be um, allied in these dark times and all that sort of stuff to make an impression on Lindar. And he sort of, at the after that, says, all right, you guys have convinced me. Um, you guys can stay in the nice quarters that are upstairs and um, have, you know, soft beds and good food and all that sort of stuff. And there's no mechanical difference yet between that. They wouldn't have suffered anything for staying down in the cramped quarters and they didn't get anything from being in the nice quarters. But it was a great it was a great role play moment where the players sort of. Um, you know, I don't know if the players knew that there was no mechanical bonus or penalty, but it was great that they decided to sort of stick up for their friends um, 
that was really cool. So it was a, that was a really, really positive moment in the session. Um, so they stay in the Elf King's halls. They spend like two or three days um, drinking elven wine and eating good food and listening to the elves sing while they dance in the starlight, all of that sort of stuff. It's very happy and peaceful. And then uh, Lindar comes to them and says, all right, we've got Baldor and his ponies are all, you know, ready to go. So it's time for everybody to go. Baldor says, yep, it's time to go. So they set off on their journey. So journeys work a little bit differently in the One Ring second edition um, than they did in first edition. So I had to sort of convert on the fly, um, but it worked out all right. Basically what we had was uh, a first event where um, the guide, the uh, who was Freren the Dwarf, because he has a really high travel score, He um, the first event was that um, after a couple of days, Wilder the Ranger, he um, stops and he tries to drink some water from a stream, and Freren the Dwarf kind of bats it out of his hands and says, don't drink anything in Mirkwood, because there's a there's a shadow on this uh, forest, and you could you could something bad could happen if you drink from the water in Mirkwood. Um, that you didn't bring with you, right? Water, water in a water skin is okay, but you don't want to drink just, you know, water from the river and all that sort of stuff. The next event, I don't remember if we had another randomly generated event or not. I think we did have one more randomly generated event, and I think it was... Um, who was it that had... A chance to show off their skills. I don't remember exactly. Unfortunately, it was only a couple days ago. But anyway, um, but then for the third event, what I did was rather than randomly generate the way it works in One Ring Second Edition is that every um, set amount of time, every amount of time set by the travel rules, the travel rules that the guide makes set how often events happen. And then for every event, you roll the feet die, the 12 sided die, and one of the six sided dice, the success dice. Um, you roll both of those and that tells you what type of event is happening, what's at stake, and who the event is targeting, essentially. Um, so then the next event, what I did was rather than do a randomly generated event, I just did one of the events from the book because the book um, the uh, has several kind of extended events in the, the adventure written out. There are several of these sort of extended events. So this is the first one. And basically the players... Um, they they find the the party finds a sort of uh, sheltered grove on the path, and they um, Belgo the boy drops down and says he won't go any further. That that he just has to rest. So they um, decide to rest. They um, hang out. Oh, that's what happened. Hallis the elf. Something happened with him. And um, he got sidetracked and they lost a little bit of time. He was sort of worn down by the traveling, fatigued and all that sort of stuff. So that was the second event. So then the third event was this kind of set piece event. Um, so they bed down for the night. They set a watch and it is in Bungo, the Hobbit's watch. Um, the last watch of the night, Bungo's on watch and he's kind of having trouble keeping his eyes open. It's been, you know, a long road and all that sort of stuff. So 
It's a bit of trouble, a bit, a bit difficult. He fails his awareness role, so he doesn't notice that Baldor, the merchant, has stood up and walks over to the sort of stream that is running by the, um, the little um, clearing. And only when Baldor kind of crouches down and makes a sort of grunt as he crouches down to cup his hands and drink a little bit of the water does Bunga realize what's about to happen. And, of course, can't stop Baldor from, from doing this, um, even though he knows Baldor apparently has forgotten Freren's warning. He drinks from the water. Bungo says, shouts at him and says, don't do that. But it is, of course, too late. Um, Baldor looks at him and there's a sort of recognition in his eyes that fades away. Suddenly, Baldor is shouting about um, how he's been kidnapped and how he has to get back to save his son because the dragon is attacking. What has happened mechanically is, or not sort of mechanically, but what the players um, may not have entirely realized is that Baldor has basically been transported back to the night of the dragon attack four years before the events of this um, adventure. The, the dragon attack on Lake Town where Bard the Bowman slays Smog the Golden. And um, he basically doesn't recognize anybody there. So he is terrified because he's in this dark forest alone and thinks that he needs to go rescue his son and his wife. And so Bungo's shouting wakes up Wilder the ranger and Hallis the elf. But Freren the dwarf is a little groggy. Um Baldor turns and races off into the forest. So immediately, Wilder the ranger, who was sort of quick to his feet, races off after him. Hallis the elf is next behind him, and Freren the dwarf is still kind of wiping the sleep out of his eyes, but sees that they're going, grabs his uh, axe, and races off after them. Bungo the hobbit sort of says, you know what? I'm, you know, the smallest of the group. I'm going to, you know not be as fast as these guys. And also there's this nine-year-old kid with the ponies left in the grove. So I'm not going to just leave, leave this kid alone in the middle of the dark forest after his dad just ran off. So I'm going to stay here, try to, you know, make sure the kid's okay, calm him down and make sure that the ponies and all that sort of stuff stays safe so that when the other guys get back, it'll be okay. So, Wilder the ranger is the fastest going through the forest and he can hear crashing through the trees Baldor ahead of him and he starts to see little bits of spider webs in the trees just sort of out of the corner of his eyes and he rushes forward and he almost trips over the restrained form of Baldor the merchant who has slipped and fallen and kind of rolled himself through a number of spider webs. And is he's not like completely impossible to get out of this wrapping. He's not like completely cocooned, but he's sort of wrapped up and struggling in these spider webs. And then we drop into combat initiative. So Wilder the ranger, he throws down his bow draws his sword and gets his buckler out. So he's standing over um, the merchant in case something happens. First round, one spider appears, one big spider, an adder cop. Um, 
Hallis the elf appears too because he's been racing after them. Hallis the elf charges forward, stabs the spider and kills it in one blow with a really good roll on his attack. Um, but then at the end of that round, two more adder cops appear. Frere and the dwarf is coming. Frere and the dwarf pops out of the trees and sort of forms a shield wall with Wilder the ranger. And Hallis kind of pulls back and pulls out his bow so that he can sort of shoot over their shoulders. And they start fighting adder cops. And every round, two more adder cops appear. So the book, uh, in the way that the adventure is written, actually, it goes a little bit differently. And what's supposed to happen is that the uh, adder cops take Baldor all the way to their sort of home location. And the party has to rescue him while every round, the number of rounds it's been, adder cops appear. So I said, uh, I sort of adjusted that to say that, okay, they did a really good job of trying not to let Baldor get all the way out of their sight. So I'm going to maximize it at two adder cops, which two adder cops is still pretty significant. Two adder cops is 14 endurance and three hate per adder cop, which there weren't any adder cop stats in the second edition book. So I have to had to open up the first edition one ring book to sort of um, see what the stats looked like for the adder cop and um, try to figure out what they should be for second edition. Um, Cause there aren't as many spiders in Ariador as there are in Mirkwood apparently. So they don't have spiders statted out in the second edition book yet, but Anyway, two adder cops are appearing every round. The, the elf is shooting between them. They're cutting down adder cops left and right, doing their best. They're having a couple of bad rounds. The dwarf is sort of charged forward into forward stance while where Wilder is kind of um, staying defensive, trying to you know parry and block and keep Baldor safe. They're starting to get overwhelmed. Wilder the ranger decides that what he could do is he could use his sword instead of attacking to try to cut Baldor free so that he can run back to away from the spiders back to the camp. So he cuts him free. More adder cops are appearing. They're getting into trouble. They've killed like four adder cops at this point, which is no small feat. And there are like four or five more of them in the fight now for three allies. And so then we look up the rules for leaving engagement because the way it works is that you have to make a successful weapon combat proficiency role to leave, to be able to leave the engagement. But if you do that, you can flee for free. And if you're in rearward stance, so basically if you're shooting your bow from behind the line of combat, you can always flee for free instead of shooting. So we talk through that and we sort of say, okay, what needs to happen is that Wilder and Frerin need to make their rolls in order to get out. And then Hallis the elf, because he's behind the line, he's using his bow, he can always run away just fine. First attempt, Wilder the ranger fails his role. So Frerin says, well, I'm not leaving without Wilder. I'm going to stick around. And so tries to smack another adder cop with his axe. And Hallis keeps shooting. Second round, Wilder succeeds, but Freren fails, and they're both they're both getting in trouble. Wilder, the ranger, has been hit for a wound, so he's not weary yet, um, or maybe he was weary by that point. But he's 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 low on endurance and wounded, but he's still got like fourteen endurance left, and the spiders only do like three endurance on a hit normally. 
the dwarf Freren has pushed off his helmet and dropped it and dropped his shield to try to get his load down so that he's not weary so that he can make these rolls. So he's even more vulnerable now and he's losing endurance quickly. He's in serious trouble. Freren fails the second round that they try to leave. So they stay and then disaster in the enemy phase of that round, the Adder Cops attack Wilder and don't succeed at hitting him because he's got a really good parry. The Adder Cops do attack Freren and they succeed in reducing him to zero endurance, which means that he goes unconscious. He is knocked out by these Adder Cops. He just doesn't have the strength to fight anymore. Um, he's so weary that he just doesn't have anything left in the tank at all. And we sort of look at each other and we're like, what are we going to do? So then we come up with what we're going to do. Wilder the Ranger is going to make his role to try to exit the, the fight. Hallis the Elf, his cultural blessing as an elf is elf skill, which means that he can spend a point of hope to get a magical success on any roll. And this is this takes a little while of talking through. We sort of talk through all our options and are like, you know, what could we do to save Freren? And what I come up with um, with the help of some of the others and what we eventually agree upon is that Hallis the Elf will spend a point of hope, get a magical success at athletics, rush into the fray, grab Freren and pull him out and run back to the camp before the spiders are able to take him down. And that's going to be that. And so I say, okay, Wilder, make your roll. Wilder rolls. He puts in some extra hope to get an even bigger dice pool. He rolls his feet die and four success dice. Three of them, because he's weary, count as nothing but he gets just enough to succeed at the role. So he's able to escape and he's seen Freren down. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he starts right. He turns and runs. Hallis the elf says, I'm not going to leave my buddy behind, spends his point of hope to get his magical success, rolls his athletics. And what I said was, if you get a six on your athletics role, um, I'll even say that Freren isn't wounded at all. Um, he's just taking endurance loss. Otherwise, he's going to have to make an armor save. He doesn't get a six. So Hallis the Elf basically does this super cool like rolling maneuver where he kind of rolls over the body and comes up with the body across, Freren's unconscious body across his shoulders um, and uh, runs off into the trees. And then we decide Freren, Freren being a canny dwarf, has a little leather loop on his axe so that his axe is hanging on. Freren's left his helmet and his shield at the side of the combat, and Wilder has left his bow at the side of the combat. So they've definitely lost some weapons. They'll be able to get them back once they get to civilization, but there's still a fair distance of Mirkwood to travel through. Hallis the elf is racing through the forest, gets back to the camp just after Wilder. They pull Freren's body down and lay him down, and they start checking him for wounds, and I have Freren make his armor save. Freren wears really good armor. His armor save is fine. Freren is not wounded. He hasn't been poisoned by the spiders or anything like that. He's still going to be okay. Wilder has been wounded, so Hallis the elf... Um, knows some has some skill with healing so he's able to sort of patch wilder up it's only going to take wilder a couple of days to be back in fighting form but that's where we end the session baldor has returned to the camp 
Bungo the Hobbit stayed in the camp. Belgo the boy is in the camp. And then Wilder the ranger, Hallis the elf, and Freren the dwarf are all back in the camp. They can see the spider's glowing eyes out in the darkness of the forest. But the spider's are deterred by the ancient magic of the elf path and will not come and attack them. So they're going to be able to last the night and get a move on in the morning. And it was awesome. It was so good. It was honestly, I think, one of the best RPG sessions I've ever run in a lot of ways. It was so much fun. The combat was incredibly intense. The role-playing was wonderful. All of my players are really, really excellent role-players who really get into it. One Ring 2nd Edition is a great system. It it does so much for the GM in terms of establishing the flavor of the world, controlling the tone of everything that's happening, all of that sort of stuff. It was so good. It was really, it was a, an absolutely top tier session of role playing. Um, so much fun. And that was the one ring second edition. That was the first session of that campaign was this one ring second edition session. So, right, it's it's going to be a tough bar to match for the next session, but it's going to be it's going to be really cool. It's I'm so excited for this campaign. That session was so good. It was so much fun. The players afterwards were messaging me on Discord and talking about how much fun they had. It was it was just awesome. We we spent like 20 minutes just hanging out and chatting after the session, kind of cooling down from the adrenaline of that fight sort of talking through how everything worked out and what we thought of the system and all that sort of stuff. And the, the agreement, the general consensus was that it was, it was a really, really excellent um, session of role-playing. So anyway, that was the One Ring second edition on Saturday afternoon. One of the best sessions I have ever run. So much fun. I, I have nothing but my... Um, eternal gratitude towards every one of the players who played in that campaign because every one of them was wonderful. They, they fought like troopers and they were total badasses and it was just so good. It was so much fun anyway, but there was one more game this weekend, the Sunday game on Valuria. And I'm going to talk about that right now. All right. I am back to talk about the last game of the weekend, which was Sunday morning. This morning, I'm going to release this episode um, late Sunday night, so still sort of this morning. Um, I ran a game session on Valuria, which is the, the name of the setting. Originally, what we did, so two weeks ago on that Sunday morning, what we did is we created characters in the Bone Crunch system that I've been working on. And as I was preparing, as I was thinking about it, as I was sort of working on this campaign in the downtime in between sessions, I gradually had more and more misgivings about using Bone Crunch. Um, Bone Crunch, one of the things is that advancement is totally built around players following their passions, which I don't think would work as well for a sort of open-ended exploration game. It works much better for a sort of... Um, story-driven game than kind of a world exploration game, in my opinion, a sort of character drama-driven game versus this sort of 
old school world exploration. And there's a number of other things. Combat in Bone Crunch is really fun, but with five players, it was going to take a while. If there were, you know, if it was five players versus five enemies, that's essentially five separate combats that have to be resolved in the Riddle of Steel system. And so the answer to that seems obvious. Don't have as many combats, but combats are really fun in this uh, system. So I don't know. It was sort of, um, I was trying to kind of go back and forth, trying to decide. And then one of the other things is, of course, because it, those random, because of the way the experience works, um, those random encounter combats don't give the players anything for winning except survival, right? They don't, you don't get XP for monsters defeated or for finding treasure on the bodies or anything like that. So anyway, the, the point of all that is to say that I eventually decided that um, Bone Crunch as a system, A, needs more fine-tuning. I, I want to go back to the drawing board on it and do kind of like a complete rewrite from the start. That was a suggestion that I read on a, a discussion about working on your own games is do, do this sort of like, you know, start with the blank page again and try to express the game from scratch again because you'll find that you know things that don't work things that are too complicated all that sort of stuff will be hard to express and so do that so i want to do that um i want to take it sort of back to the drawing board do some tinkering try to figure out how to get it to work where i want it and then i want to do you know a couple of one shots with it do some sort of small stuff play testing it before i do a big campaign using the system but anyway, so what I decided was, okay, well, there's some other really cool games out there, and why not use one of them that I like a lot, which is Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Um, and so what I told the players, I told, so Carl and Jason and Che Webster are all in the Bone Crunch, or what was the Bone Crunch game and is now the Ash and Valuria game. And um, I told them that I was thinking about that. And then on the Discord, I sort of talked to everybody. And then this morning when we all got on the Discord voice, I sort of talked to them through why I wanted to change and um, why I think Ash would be a better fit. And everybody was like, yeah, that's okay. We're, we're cool with that. We'll just rebuild the characters in Ash using the character classes in Ash rather than the sort of classless freeform character creation of Bone Crunch. Um, and so that was the first thing we did is we spent um, an hour and a half, maybe, maybe two hours, probably closer to an hour and a half than two hours, just building characters. So what we did was we decided, um, I really like rolling dice for stats. So what I did was I originally was going to have everybody roll their own dice. And then what we decided was a better solution was to basically have one of the players roll essentially an array of dice and then using the stat, that would be the sort of standard stat array that every character in the game would get to use. So all of the starting characters get to use this kind of same standard array. So basically i think that i think that's uh, a good way to do it you still get some dice rolling i mean he rolled an 18 on one of his uh rolls because he was rolling three 46 dropped the lowest so one of them was an 18 and one of them was a 16 so they got some pretty good stats based on the good rolls um but also they have a 10 a 9 and an 11 so they have really average stats for three of their stats um 
but that gives a good a good variety. It was an 18, a 16, a 14, an 11, a 10, and a 9. So they've got basically three stats that they're at about the human average at and three stats that they're above or significantly above the average at. And I think that'll make for pretty capable characters. One of the things, of course, is that level one characters in Ash, like a lot of old school games, are really dependent on their stats to be able to succeed at things, right? Once you're level five or six, you don't really need a high strength to be able to hit things. But if you're level one and you've only got a fighting ability of one or zero, having a high strength gives you a huge bonus to be able to hit things. So it's a big deal. Anyway, um, so what I'm getting at is basically that's how we did stats. And then we went through and we talked about some of the character classes, what was going to work for different characters. So we have um, we have a pure thief. We have two berserkers, actually. And we have a huntsman. And we have a pyromancer. Although the pyromancer is sort of tentative because Che couldn't play. So what I did was I said, I'll just build a character. I'll just try to convert your character Soriandum. And I'll sort of leave that for you and you can um, tinker with that character if you don't like it or um, don't like him or um, you can build him yourself if you want to or anything like that, whatever is going to work. But I figured it would help to have a sort of character available and obviously Che had built Soriandum in Bone Crunch, so I sort of knew what I wanted to build in um, Ash. So anyway, um, and then it was a matter of, you know, copying down the stats, copying out all the bonuses, um, talking through how the sheet works so that everybody copied things down in sort of the correct syntax, picking weapons, talking a little bit about kind of the world and all of that sort of stuff. And so it was about an hour and a half, maybe a little more um, before we were ready to begin. But then we were ready to begin. So I sort of said, so you remember what I told you last time about this world. There's basically a sort of main empire that's very much like the Roman Empire at its height, that it controls most of the known world. There's a couple of sort of fringe areas that are not controlled by the empire. So there's the Tarog in the north that are sort of these northern barbarians, um, sort of uh, Germanic or, or Norse barbarian types. And then there's the Ammonites in the south who are kind of pseudo-Egyptian um, peoples. And then there's a couple of other that I've been coming up with because it makes, it makes sense to me to have more kind of, um, areas that are outside of the Imperial control, but basically most of the known world is controlled. Most of what most people know about the world is that the empire controls just about all of it as far as they're concerned. Um, but there's this island, this this island that has been recently discovered, and it's unclear whether it existed before or not. There's a sort of magical quality to the island that it seems, um, but it's been recently discovered, and the Empire has set up an outpost on this island, and there is treasure to be had. So all the characters are sort of expected to want to, you know, go out and make their fortune for various reasons, they have different kind of backstory reasons for wanting to make their fortune. But um, all the characters are sort of expected to want to go out and make their fortune and um, gather up lots and lots and lots of treasure so that they can, um, you know, be badasses and sword and sorcery heroes and all that sort of stuff. So Anyway, and so we start with the ship. It's sort of a, a trade ship, a kind of classic 
um, ancient Mediterranean trade ship um, sails into Port Valeria, which is the name. The island is named Valeria, and the port is called Port Valeria because the empire is very clever with their names. Um, and I sort of tell them about what's there. The sailors are going to go to this tavern called the Mercenary, and the, that that's sort of where they suggest you sort of go to, to find a place to sleep and all that sort of stuff. The player characters, what we did was we had them uh, have equipment and like rations and water skins and stuff. But I, I didn't have them roll gold and pay for it. I just sort of said, you know, you're going to start out with basically nothing aside from what you're carrying. Um, I did, And I didn't even, I don't even remember how explicit I was about that. I think they just all sort of picked up on that, um, that that was the idea. So anyway, we go to the tavern and they go to the mercenary. They're sort of trying to figure out what to do. So one of them is going to sort of, rumor hunt and so he gets talking to some of the people finds out that there are ape men to the north and there are ruins with treasure to the sort of west southwest um finds out both of those from rumors part of the rumors are coming from a company of mercenaries um, there are six mercenaries who have come back from these ruins to the southwest with basically big sacks full of uh ancient gold coins these these heavy ancient gold coins that are worth uh one and a half gold pieces per gold coin because that's something i like i like the idea that like ancient coins were more pure precious metal because that was a thing that happened in the roman empire is that roman emperors would dilute the um the the purity of the metal used in the coin minting process to try to print to try to mint more coins basically and so that's kind of a fun thing that i like to throw into my stories is that you know the old coins the ancient coins they're more pure gold whereas the new coins they've got a lot more lead in them so they're not they're not really as pure anymore um but anyway that's just a little detail that i like so there's a couple of mercenaries that have come back with this treasure and they're sort of being fairly open about that they've come from the West, but they're not really saying exactly where they came from. Um, so then one of the player characters, Jason's character dressed, wants to get a battle axe, but he, he didn't start with a battle axe. So he says, all right, can I um, challenge somebody for like for their weapon or for some gold or something to like a, an arm wrestling match or something? I say, well, well, how about a drinking contest with these mercenaries? And he's like, yeah, that sounds good. So I say, all right, each mercenary puts in basically 12 GP worth of these ancient coins. Um, and your short sword is worth 10 GP. So they'll say that's fine. And then um, our fed um, Darren Green's character um, Bamani put in his small shield, which is only worth five GP. And they sort of gave him shit about that, but they were, these mercenaries were pretty sure they were going to win. So they um, were okay with that. And basically what I had them do is roll tests of constitution, which is a, a thing that you can do in um, Ash. There's a special based on your constitution stat, you have to roll, um, a certain score or lower on a D six to, um, succeed at a test of constitution. So the first one, I just assumed that the mercenaries had 10 constitutions, which means that they have a two in six chance of succeeding first time, first roll. One of the mercenaries fails. One of them succeeds. 
Uh, Bamani fails, but Drest succeeds. So Drest is still in it to try to win back their gear and to win some gold. Um, but Bamani is out of it. He's he's very drunk and he's like blacking out and stuff. The the other mercenary, one of the mercenaries, is like asleep on the table. So have them do it again. The other mercenary fails and Drest just barely succeeds. It's, he has like an eighteen constitution, so it's like a five and six roll, and he rolls a five. Um, but he succeeds. He's able to win the drinking contest. He's he's not feeling great, but um, you know he's able to win the contest. He scoops up the gold, gives Bamani back his shield, puts his short sword back in his belt, and um, uses the gold to buy them a room for the night. Um, so they get a room for the night. It's got sort of two bunk beds. They put Bamani on one of them, and um, I think Drest took the other one. I don't remember for certain because he was fairly drunk. And they let Felix and um, Titus sleep on the floor. Felix, the the party thief, he sort of... So Titus is the one who went searching for rumors. Bamani and Drest did the drinking contest. And Felix, what he decided he wanted to do is he's going to wait until one of the mercenaries was basically super drunk and then he was going to sort of pretend to help him back to his room, but pick his pocket on the way, which was great. He, um, he helps him back to his room. He picks his pocket. And then um, he was like, well, is there anything useful in the room? And I said, well, what do you want? And he says, well, I would really like to um, know like where they got the treasure, you know, where exactly we should go to get um, treasure. Like they got treasure. And so I say, okay, well, um, let's just roll for it. You know, we'll roll, roll a die 50, 50 chance. He says something in his sleep about where he went, um, roll the die gets a four. So a four out of six, a four on SD six means that's a, a good 50, 50. And he, um, and I say, okay, you found out you, you have to prod him a little bit and he's very drunk. So he's not making a lot of sense, but you can figure out where you need to go to get to the ruin that these guys plundered basically. Um, and I, on the map, I've got the fog of war on roll 20. So I unfog of war that um, hex basically on the hex map. So then the player characters there um, settled in for the night. Felix has got some gold from one of the mercenaries and um, they got some gold uh, dressed, has some gold from the other mercenaries. And um, yeah, they, they settle in for the night. The next morning they wake up. I have them roll constitution again to see if they are going to have a, a splitting hangover. But both of the player characters who were drinking heavily in the drinking contest succeed. So they're Okay. Um, dress says he wants to go get an ax. So I say, okay, it's going to take a little bit of time because the shop has to open up and you have to like, you know, check its swing, make sure they're not trying to sell you a, a piece of shit ax there. You want a good ax. So you're going to have to spend some time on it. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. We'll just lose a little bit of time, a couple of movement points essentially for the day. Um, but he buys a battle ax and they stock up on rations and water skins. They can carry three water skins each and a week's worth of regular rations or two weeks worth of iron rations. Um, so they have, I think most of them have regular rations right now and three water skins. So they're, um, they're like, okay, we will um, go off 
adventuring. So they go off toward the Southwest to try to find the ruin. So they don't make it in the first day, but nothing happens on the first day. There's no event rolled. So nothing happens on the first day. Um, they settle in for the night. They have set a watch on their camp. Nothing happens over the night. So the next day they go and what they find in this hex where they the ruin is, they find essentially the, the ruins of a section of an aqueduct. Basically like three big square pillars that are separated apart like they had arches in between them at one point. Um, but the rest of the aqueduct... There's, there's nothing left. The, the ravages of time have destroyed this. And this is sort of in a clearing in the jungle. Um, and they can't see really any other aqueduct. So what they decide is that most of the characters will um, hang out in the jungle. And Felix, the, um, the thief, he will sneak up to the, the middle pillar and climb up it and um, see what he can see. So he does. He doesn't succeed at his stealth check but luckily there's nobody in the um the sort of nest at the top of this pillar because there's a sort of makeshift kind of nest built at the top of this thing about 15 feet up um and uh he gets up there and he finds some kind of like leafy bedding and he finds some sort of uh flint tools like a stone dagger and he finds a couple of coins and so he scoops up the coins puts them in his pouch scoops up the flint dagger puts it in his pouch because he thinks it might be useful and that is when out from the tree line come and i rolled randomly uh on a d6 for how many and there are two ape men that come out of the tree line and so then we go into combat and everybody has to declare. We do the standard Ash thing. Everybody declares actions. Dressed declares that he's going to charge in and um, throw his short spear and then rush in with his battle axe. Bamani declares that he's going to wait to see what happens. But if the eight men spot them, he's going to charge in. So, of course, when Dress goes charging, he goes charging. Felix is going to kind of sneak around a little bit to get a good shot, a beautiful position for a shot with his crossbow. And um, Titus is kind of moving around through the underbrush to try to get a good sneak attack position with his bolas. Um, and it's basically over There's um, in the first round because um, I think Dressed missed, but Bamani didn't with his attack. Does uh, They only had six hit points each because they're one-hit die creatures. They get plus two hit points, so 1d8 plus two, Got six for both of them. Um, uh, Bomani kills his, dressed misses his, but Felix from up uh, top shoots him with the crossbow and kills him. Um, so basically one round of combat, they're able to take down the eight men that um, seem to be returning to their kind of outpost. Um, they sort of look around. Um, Felix decides he wants to investigate the other um uh, tower, so I or pillar, so there are one of the other pillars because there's two more. He's on the middle one, and I say, okay, well, you can um, sort of try to like tightrope walk across some vines that are growing between them, or you can climb down and climb back up. And he says, I want to tightrope walk across. Um, rolls a six on his dexterity test, so he fails. <laughs> Um, so he falls and takes 1d6 worth of damage. I roll a two, but I let him make an avoidance save to grab onto something kind of at the last second to kind of slow his fall. And he succeeds, so he only takes one point of damage. That's the first point of damage taken in the campaign is basically Felix falling from 
who's Carl's character falling, Carl's thief falling from the top of one of these sort of aqueduct pillars. Um, and that's where we left it. And then I ended up doing some work on the campaign over the course of today. I um, wrote up a fair bit of setting information to put onto the Roll20 because what I've been doing is creating handouts in Roll20 with um, text written out so that it's really, I find, I think that's really good for players to be able to reference in game. And then obviously when they're out of game, they can reference it too if they want to see what the, the text says. So I wrote up a fair bit of world information. I also rolled up some treasures. So I found out that those two, um, those two ape men had between them 12 electrum pieces so i added that to the player characters each each of the four player characters that were there gets three electrum pieces from that um and then generally they um yeah that was the end we did experience points they got like 460 xp i gave them a fair bit of xp for basically on the xp chart it on ash it says like give them like 25 to 100 xp every time they make a clever use of their abilities so i was like okay well yeah so 50 xp basically every time they do something that is really you know a clever solution or something like that so they got a couple of those they got some xp for treasure i gave them xp for treasure for the gold that they won in the drinking contest and the gold that was pickpocketed and the gold that they found in the nest um but most of the XP was from kind of story accomplishments type stuff. Um, and then the other thing I didn't do is I didn't divide the XP because that's the thing I really like in old school games, the sense that everybody, there's a sort of sense of camaraderie that comes from not dividing XP. There's a sense that like every time your buddies show up together, you're gonna like, you know, the sessions where you have five players versus the session where you have three players, those five player sessions don't feel like, oh, I've got to split XP with all these guys. Instead, they feel like awesome we're going to be able to take on even bigger challenges and get even more XP for our characters, get more treasure, all of that sort of stuff. It's going to be a bigger reward because we've got a bigger party. And I really like that feeling. I think that's a really good, a really positive feeling of camaraderie between the players really makes for a great um, tone to the campaign, a really, you know, working together to take on all the bad stuff in the campaign world type tone. So I didn't divide the XP by four. Um, I just took the, the total sum of all the XP that they had earned and that was 460. So I gave them 460 XP, which with a 10% bonus is actually like, um, you know, 506 XP. So for Carl, the thief, he's like a third of the way there to level two versus Jason, the barbarian, uh, Carl's thief, um, Felix is like a third of the way to level two, whereas I think um, Dressed, Jason's uh, Berserker, is more like um, a fifth of the way or, or even more out to get to level two. So um, it was interesting. There was some discussion on the Discord. And then one of the other things I did was I told them that I would like someone after every session to do a session write-up, record kind of what happened for anybody who wasn't there, and for our notes together so that we're not all dependent on my notes. Um, and that what I would do is I would give them, whoever writes the session recap, the next session they attend, they get plus 10% XP. So not, I feel like if it was a flat XP thing, then as they get to higher levels, it doesn't matter as much. So there's not a lot of incentive, but plus 10% XP 
is always 10% XP. So, you know, at high levels when they're taking on, you know, hordes of enemies and getting tons of XP, that'll be worth 10% of tons of XP and all that sort of stuff. So I felt like that was fair. Um, and the result was really good. I thought, I think the, the Ash game in Valeria went really well. Um, I did a bunch of work on it today. I spent like two hours in that Roll20 just building um, rollable tables and macros and organizing notes. And because I'm, I'm really leaning in on the idea of having notes in the Roll20 where they're really easy for me to access during the game. Because I think that is really good, a really good way, at least for me, for the process of... Um, yeah, accessing and using my notes that um, if I like write in a journal or something, if I have to flip through my journal and skim and all of that sort of stuff at the same time as there's stuff happening in the game, I can't like listen and flip and skim all at once. So having the notes there, I can just open them up when nothing's happening and skim through them. And then when something starts happening, just close them and they're still right there. Um, and then I can build macros for a lot of the kind of like random roll stuff so that I just have to press a button um, instead of having to like roll the dice and consult a chart and figure out what that means. I can just press the button and figure out what that means. So anyway, um, I think it's going to be really good. I'm really excited for the Ash and Valeria game. I'm really excited about all the games I'm running right now. Um, but Ash and Valeria, I think it's going to be a really good, and it's I think it's going to be a really good, like, deep setting exploration style game, which is what the goal is um, for, for my buddy Che Webster, who has done so much for me, um, so many great ideas from his podcast, so many great discussions with him. Um, great games with him and all that sort of stuff. I wanted to run a kind of deep exploration game because that's sort of what he is really interested in playing. And so that's the goal for Ash and Valeria is to have this kind of deep exploration of a world. And I think it's going to work really well. I think, I think today was a really good first pass at it. And um, after I have kind of done some more work in the Roll20, gotten some more notes together, gotten some more macros ready, gotten some more encounter tables and all that sort of stuff ready, that it's going to be really easy to just sit down and focus on the world and kind of let the system run itself. So anyway... That's and that's my goal is to basically like let the system take care of itself, focus on the world so that I can do that kind of world focus element and, um, you know, be focused on kind of explaining or or showing this really interesting world and just kind of let the system because I know Ash pretty well and um, it works well as a system and I think it handles itself well and I think I think the result is going to be really good. So anyway, I'm really excited about all the campaigns I'm running, Ash and Valeria and the One Ring second edition campaigns. Um, yeah, really cool stuff. I'm, I'm super excited. Um, but I think that is the end of this session recap, which means we are going to the outro. All right. I know that was a whole lot. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying the recap episodes. I certainly am enjoying both playing the games and getting a chance to relive the games by doing these recaps. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with all this sort of stuff. I'm generally, I'm generally feeling this was a really good weekend. Um, and I, um, I, uh, couple last couple of weeks have been not quite so good. I haven't been feeling quite as well. 
um, the past couple weeks, but um, this weekend was really good. A ton of fun games, um, hang out, hung out with a bunch of good friends and all that sort of stuff. So it was really cool. And I hope that my um, excitement for the games came across and that it gets you excited about playing your games. Um, anyway, so I think that is going to be it. I know this was a really long one, so thank you for sticking it out all the way to the end. Um, two hours and 23 minutes or whatever it's going to be total by the time this outro is over. Um, but thank you so much for listening. I've been Arlen Walker. I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.